Good morning. My name is Eileen, and I am an alcoholic. And I want to thank Marilyn for that lovely introduction. I want to thank Chris um, and Mitch and Joanna, all everyone who had anything to do with my getting here. I was actually asked to um, speak here a couple of years ago, but uh, I've recently joined the ranks of the completely orthopedically challenged, and um, I had a, a couple of surgeries, and so I was unable to come, but I'm pleased to say that I'm doing really well now, and I'm uh, bionic, as a matter of fact, and um, and I'm really glad to be here. Um, thank you very much for your talk last night, Peggy. Um, there are actually a lot of similarities in our stories, um, except that I'm not rich, and uh, <laughs> never have been, but, <laughs> but I do okay. <laughs> Anyway, I, um, I'm glad to go anywhere. You know, I really like to go. You know, I like, I think the only reason on earth to have money is to travel and get a lot of massages. And, um, and actually in Bali you can get them every day because they're like four dollars. But, uh, anyway, I, um, I, I love to go. I, I like to meet new people. Um, you know, it's the only reason really why I think that uh, that I like to be asked to go different places to speak in AA is that I really like to go. And uh, so I'm very happy to be here. And um, anyway, uh, keeping with our format, I'm supposed to tell you what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like now. Um, I will also tell you, although we don't usually do this in Los Angeles, that uh, through the grace of God and Alcoholics Anonymous, I have not found it necessary to drink the youth since March 3rd of 1975. And, um, which is to say that I have been sober four years longer than I was alive when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's pretty remarkable. Um, I am impressed with the fact that you are celebrating 59 years of Alcoholics Anonymous in Manitoba. I am always uh, amazed um, by the stories of how Alcoholics Anonymous was able to spread in the early days, uh, several years ago. I spoke at a function up in San Francisco celebrating the uh, 60th anniversary of the first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in San Francisco, California. And uh, there was a man there, you know, uh, I'm always uh, just blown away by the AA historians because, like, uh, you know, Cookie, I don't remember very much, but these guys just know everything. And, uh, you know, and he was talking about the first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in San Francisco took place in a hotel called Swift and, uh, and how that came about is as a result of a radio uh, broadcast and also the Jack Alexander article in the Saturday Evening Post, people started hearing about uh, the miracle of sobriety that was happening in Alcoholics Anonymous, and people started writing to New York Central Office or to, to General Service or whatever the office was in those days. And what would happen is that businessmen who had gotten sober in Alcoholics Anonymous started traveling around the country and depending on where they were going, they were given a handful of phone numbers, and they were asked to call people everywhere they went. And uh, and as a result of uh, somebody traveling out to San Francisco, this meeting was held in a hotel room in San Francisco about 63 years ago. And, uh, you know, we're so lucky because, I, you know, I look around in this room, and I don't know where all of you have come from, but I know that uh, Winnipeg is a reasonable-sized city, and I assume that you have a number of groups and meetings and you know, in Los Angeles, we have 2,800 meetings a week in the, in the greater L.A. area. And uh, and I always love it when people come to me and they go, I can't find a meeting I like, you know. And um, they have no idea what it's like to live in some little town where you go to the same Milano club with the same lame 18 people day after day after day after day. But, uh, you know, I... Uh, we have a meeting directory that looks like a small novelette, and so I uh, I hand them directory and I tell them to go to every meeting in the directory and then come back and tell me they can't find a meeting they like. Now, I've done the simple mathematics. If they go to a meeting a day, it'll take them seven and a half years to work their way <laughs> through the directory, and as a result of that, they'll probably find a meeting they like, and you won't have to listen to their whining for a long, long time, you know, but... Uh, but I think about, you know, how it was in the early days, and, uh, you know, we're so spoiled now. I mean, it wasn't always like this. And, uh, you know, it was interesting because Marilyn mentioned that I had the opportunity to speak in Bali this year, which was an extraordinary experience. And, uh, you know, and the group there is really small, and uh, 
you know, and a lot, and most of the people who comprise the group there are expatriate Canadians, Australians, Americans, and, uh, you know, the Balinese have started to come in slowly, and, uh, and a lot of them are in alcoholics for the simple reason that heroin is cheaper in Bali than alcohol, and, uh, and, but a lot of these young Balinese kids are coming in, and so they had the convention, and, uh, there were 200 people at the big Saturday night meeting, and about um, half of them had probably come from out of the country. But the sweetest moment for me uh, was when I spoke on Sunday morning in a small circle of Balinese, and my talk was translated from English into Indonesian. And I had to speak slowly and carefully because you can't just run through it. You have to stop every sentence or two. And uh, and I saw the look of recognition and laughter and tears. And uh, and I realized that, you know, we all speak the same language. And Cookie talked about how when she came into AA and they had a 12-step banner over here and a 12-tradition banner over here. And I've been in clubhouses around the world where those banners have been in different languages. But I know what they are. I know what they are. And the book has been translated into Indonesian. So um, they do have a book now in Indonesia. But anyway, um, my story is basically this. Um, I'm a Jew from Idaho, and uh, people said I didn't know there were any Jews in Idaho. I said, not after we left. Um, I just love that as an anecdote. I left when I was four. I don't remember it at all, but I just love the idea that I was a Jew from Idaho, and uh my parents are from New York, and my father was in the U.S. Marine Corps, and uh, they moved him around a lot. Uh, he was a recruiter, and he ended up in Boise, where he became a uh, minor league baseball announcer and disc jockey for about 10 years. So we lived there until I was four, and then I moved to Los Angeles, where I've essentially lived ever since. And, um, well, let's see. I was the star of my uh, grammar school. I peaked at 11 and a half, <laughs> and it was downhill from there. Um I was uh, I was a very uh, weird child. I was a very neurotic child. I was a very self-involved child. I was very interested in how I was impacting the planet. This was very important to me. I was very concerned with what you thought about me. I excelled at everything except for physical education and interpersonal relationships. Um, <laughs> I wasn't good with people. Uh, <laughs> And people always say to me now, you know, you're so personable, you're so good with people, but it wasn't always like that. And I'm really very shy. You know, I I, um, I look like I know everybody, but it's really more that everybody knows me. You know, I have about six friends. I mean, when it comes right down to it, you know, I millions of acquaintances, but about six friends. And uh, anyway, I was a very bizarre child, and quite frankly, I could have used a drink in kindergarten, you know, and... Uh, <laughs> It would have made the first grade a lot easier, you know. Um, not that I was a social drinker, but alcohol was a hell of a social lubricant. And, uh, you know, it just made it easier to slither through the world. But uh, anyhow, I was a very bizarre child, and I was I was very interested in your approval. Um, and, um, you know, I, um, I'll jump all over the place, too. My synapses don't always fire, you know. I... I also took a lot of drugs, including LSD, and I just think, uh, you know, I just burned out a lot of cells. And, uh, you know, I was up in Washington once, and I have this old friend named Big Janice who finally ended up in AA, thank God, and she pointed at this guy uh, who lives in this little town in, in Washington, and uh, he looks like Frank Zappa, actually, and they call him Zappa, although his name is Mark, and she said, see that guy over there? And I said, yeah, and she said, he has one cell left, and it's going boing, boing, <laughs> boing, boing. <laughs> And some days I really identify with that, but, uh, and I'm also a little dyslexic, so I, I just, you know, anyhow, um, because I can't even remember what I was talking about. I, uh, <laughs> I'm a personal assistant, um, in the entertainment business. That's what I do for a living, and, uh, and it's really a great job because I don't get to manage my life, but I more or less get to manage his. I mean, he has no idea what I'm doing, and, uh, you know, but his life wouldn't run by or somebody like me wasn't there, but, uh, Anyway, um, I didn't have any pets growing up, which is not a sad story. I don't want any pets. Like, um, I don't want to take care of anything that requires that much care. Um, my, uh, my boyfriend um, put a candle on top of the armoire in my bedroom, and it made a big smoke stain up on the ceiling, which didn't really bother me. But then he tried to clean it, and it got worse. And then he tried to cover it up with a plant, and I just thought, oh, no. Because not only am I now going to have a big stain on my ceiling, but now I'm going to have to contend with a dead plant. And uh, because, 
You know, I left town yesterday, and he said, did you water the plant? And I said, no. <laughs> I hate when people give me plants, because I just look at them, and I think, you're going to die. <laughs> you're just going to die, because I'm not going to water you. I just, you know, it's not that I don't want to water you. I'm just not going to remember. Anyway, so I didn't have any pets, which is not sad, but... uh but when I went to work for this man that I worked for, I got to start observing uh, pets. And uh, there's a point to this story, believe me. Um, he has a dog, and he used to have two cats, but then one of the cats disappeared, and I think a coyote got her. But So now we have a dog and a cat. And the dog's name is Roger. And Roger is a blonde Labrador retriever. And I don't know if you've ever met these dogs, but they're very interested in two things, approval and treats. That's what they're interested in. And the cat is not really interested in anything. And uh, anyway, um, I've observed these animals for several years, and I and I came up with an analogy for how I was before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and in fact, you know, how I was years into Alcoholics Anonymous. But I picture Roger, and I think if Roger could talk, Roger would probably talk like this. How am I doing? How am I doing? Am I okay? Am I okay? How am I doing? See those treats up there? I'd really like one of those treats. How am I doing? Am I okay? And you give him a treat, and he goes and he eats it on the priceless oriental carpet, and he's back in about five seconds. He's like, how am I doing now? Am I still okay? Am I still okay? Can I have one of those treats on it? And I hope this offends nobody, but Bub, the cat, Bub's kind of like this. You know? You know how cats are. <laughs> I'm the cat. I hate the dog. You know, let me out of here. And uh, anyway, the analogy that I came up with is, I'm a dog. I am a huge canine. I'm really like, how am I doing? Am I okay? How am I doing? How am, uh, am I okay? You know, but as my drinking progressed, as my life became more untenable, I really wanted to be a cat. The only problem is, I'm not a cat. I'm a dog. So the best I was able to come up with is I was a dog in a small fur cat suit. <laughs> which meant that I desperately cared what you thought about me, but I walked around like this and wondered why nobody liked me. And that's what I brought to Alcoholics Anonymous. It's the best I can come up with. Anyway, but it wasn't always like that. I also come from a nice family. My parents are not alcoholics. AA in Manitoba is celebrating 59 years. My parents celebrated 59 years of marriage this year. If they make it to next July, they'll be married 60 years. Their names are Harry and Harriet. They're a set. They have to stay together. <laughs> And they're a true partnership. I mean, my parents are a true partnership. And I have one brother to whom I'm not particularly close, but we're, we're congenial now. And, uh, you know, I think families, by the way, by their very nature, sort of dysfunctional. Because we're asked to get along with people that maybe we wouldn't choose in real life, you know. And, uh, and my brother's just one of those people. If I had to choose him for a friend, I wouldn't. But, uh, but we get along and we're congenial. And, uh, you know, and so I grew up in a nice family, and and uh, and I was also given everything. And um, you know, and the great paradox of my life, really, is that I was born with everything you were supposed to have in order to make it. I was born with looks and talent and brains and opportunity and a supportive family. But like Cookie said last night, I was also born with alcoholism. And uh, and what I know about alcoholism, or what I know about my own alcoholism, or even what I know about alcoholism as a whole is that approximately 10% of the population is alcoholic. And that means that 10% of the population has a different reaction to alcohol than the other 90%. And I've been to thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of meetings, and I have also observed that alcoholism is a respecter of no person. It doesn't care who you are. It doesn't care where you come from. It doesn't care about your ethnicity, your religious background, your sexual preference, your sex. It doesn't care about your financial status. I mean, I was sitting in a book study last Tuesday night, and we were reading from one of the new stories. I'm not that familiar with the stories in the new big book. My first big book was a second edition, actually. I got, pub I got sober a year before they published the third edition. And actually, you know, I think it was, um, God, what was it? Something about the truth. Something about the truth. But I, you know, I like the old ones, like Radio Rum and Rebellion. You know, those are the kind of you know, the titles I like. But there was something about it that made me think, isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? 
I have met everybody I have ever wanted to meet in my life in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've also met some people I've never wanted to meet. But I've met everybody I've ever wanted to meet. And, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous is sort of a, it's old-fashioned. You know, for someone who is as much of a hipster as I was, it's kind of hokey. You know, thank God. <laughs> you know, I, I, I identify with a guy that I used to know. You know, he used to say that I got here, I was so cool, I was frozen. You know, and uh, and I so identify with that. And I've spent the last 28 years thawing out. It's such a relief to no longer have to be cool. You know, and uh, but I was just thinking how this really very old-fashioned, very basic program just appeals to people across the spectrum. I mean, there's all kinds of people in this room this morning. I know that you're not all the same. I know that many of you have nothing in common with me. But as a friend of mine said, Alcoholics Anonymous suits me. It suits me. Anyway, I started to drink when I was about 13 years old, like cookie. You know, the only invisible line I ever crossed was my lips. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm i also one of those people, you know, it said, you stole all my material. I don't know where you... <laughs> But I'm one of those people, you know, it says we're men and women who like the effect produced by alcohol. I love the effect produced by alcohol. You know, there are some people who drink to get into life, and there are some people who drink to get out of life, and I'm in the latter category. You know, I don't want to be here. And I don't know what it was about my life that I found so untenable that I had to drink so I didn't have to be here. But a few years ago, my dad, whom I love more than anybody on the planet, said to me, it hasn't been easy for you, has it, babe? And I said, no. And I don't have a lot of self-pity about that. It just hasn't been easy. You know, some people seem to move through life like a hot knife through cold butter, and I'm just not one of them. You know, I seem to require a lot of assistance just to get through a day. You know, when, when Chris was reading that thing about if you need any assistance, I wanted to put my, I do. <laughs> I need assistance. And I used to resent the amount of assistance that I needed to get through a day. And now I'm like, bring it on, you know. Uh, back in 1987, I had the opportunity to travel to Israel um, to work on a movie, and it, I was there for about six weeks. And, uh, you know, getting back to that thing about how spoiled we are, here's what I had in Israel. On, on Wednesdays, I went to a woman's stag in Jerusalem. If we were lucky, we had four people. On Thursdays, I went out to visit some bizarre loners in a settlement on the West Bank who had guns. On Fridays, I would go to the N.A. meeting in the bomb shelter in Tel Aviv because N.A. is much stronger in Israel than A.A. I don't know if it still is, but it was then. And, uh, and, and, I, and I encountered an interesting thing there, too. You know, in Israel, most of the people speak English, but in, in uh, N.A., um, they speak mostly Hebrew because where you learn English is in the army and, uh, in, in, you know, in high school, and they're busy. They don't have time to go there. And um, anyway, uh, I gave a talk one night, and it was translated from English into Hebrew by a native German-speaking woman. I have no idea what they heard. <laughs> but about two years later, I got a call on a Sunday morning at 6 a.m. I know that's the time that all of you sincere people want to get a call, but, you know, uh, and it was a guy, and he was calling from New York, and he said, my name is Alvnau. I'm from Israel. I met you there. I'm in Spring Valley, New York. You know where there's an N.A. meeting. Now, Israel is a country that you can traverse in one day. And here's Avner, and he's 3,000 miles away, and it's three hours later, and he has no idea, you know? He has no idea. And if I'd been at the top of my game at 6 in the morning, I would have said, oh, I have that directory in my bedside table. But anyway, I said I'll try and help you, and I called Central Office of Narcotics Anonymous in New York City an experience I hope that all of you have someday. And Guy answers the phone and he goes, Hi, I'm Joey, I'm an addict. And I think, ah, oh, shut up. You know, <laughs> and, uh, anyway, I, I don't know. Um, while I was in Israel, uh, right before I went to Israel, I had a crisis, whose name I can't currently remember. So if you're having one of those, uh, just relax, it'll pass. Uh, and uh, I called my first sponsor, um, who was a man named Bob Earl. I hadn't talked to him in about three years. And uh, because my my current sponsor was, I think, in Arizona doing a play, and I couldn't find him. 
And uh, and I called Bobby and he said, well, of course you called me. I have to give you Nancy and Bob Wilson's phone number in Tel Aviv. And these were some people he had met in Hawaii who were in the program, but they had moved to Tel Aviv. So when I got to Israel, I called this woman, Nancy, and I told her who I was. And she said, oh, I know who you are. And I said, how do you know who I am? And she said, a month ago, somebody from the States that I didn't know sent me a bunch of AA tapes, and one of them was yours. Um, and she really saved me while I was in Israel. I mean, she really saved me. And uh, because I wasn't getting along with my then employer, um, the meetings weren't what I was used to, and she saved me. And uh, after I came back to uh, the state, she broke up with her husband, Bob, and she moved to Los Angeles, and I was able to reciprocate. And uh, she remarried, and she went back to Israel, and there was Avner, the phone call and uh, meeting, and he was clean and sober, so maybe I helped him. But uh, the point of the story of being in Israel is that one night I was um, I was uh, talking to my then-employer's brother, who happened to be a Christian, and he had come over, and we were sitting at a table, and we were talking about God. And Todd said, you know, people say to me, Jesus is a crutch. And he said, if Jesus is a crutch, let him be a stretcher. I'll just lay down and let him carry me. And uh, being Jewish, I don't feel that way about Jesus necessarily, but I certainly feel that way about Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. And uh, the two hardest things that I had to say when I got here were, I don't know, and will you help me? Because when you come into Alcoholics Anonymous with a lot of intellectual pretensions and a lot of false pride, it's hard to get any help around you. And I identify with a woman that I heard speak a few years ago who said, I came into AA like this. Help me! Stay as far away from me as possible, but please help me. I was not a cuddly newcomer. I was not a vision for you, and I was not a very nice person. And... Um, Anyway, um, like I said, I started to drink when I was 12. I loved alcohol. I loved drugs. I'm not going to deny that I took them. I grew up during the 60s, and that's what we did. And, uh, you know, the 60s were the first generation before or since that said, get as screwed up as you want to. It is the preferable way to live. And, uh, you know, and, and I had nothing to get in the way of my drinking. I mean, you know, I didn't identify with a – I'll tell you what. I do not identify with the first paragraph of Chapter Okay? I don't think that we're meant to come in here and identify with every single word, every single sentence, every single paragraph of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that first paragraph reads, most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers are characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. I never tried to prove that I could drink like other people. I never wanted to drink like other people. I wanted to drink like I drank, and I wanted other people to leave me alone so that I could drink the way that I wanted to. And there was very little in my life that caused me to think that I had to control my drinking. I pretended to go to college. I worked very marginal jobs. I lived a very marginal existence. And the big book was written by people who sort of thought they had to maintain you know, they were mostly men who had wives and families, and they thought that they had to maintain. I do not identify with waiting until 5 o'clock to start drinking cocktails. I never drank cocktails. I drank the kind of wine that came in and hovered over a grape and never quite came in for a landing. You know, that's the kind of wine I drank. I'm kind of a cheap wineette. I like to take uh, medication intended for sleep, but I don't want to sleep. Um, I want to sit in the corner and drool, or I want to operate a motor vehicle. And, uh, you know, and that's kind of what I want to do. I have two speeds. I pretty much have two speeds. And, uh, you know, I'd love to say that I'm kidding, but my philosophy of driving is if you can crawl to the car, hoist yourself up by the steering wheel, and somehow get the key in the ignition, I'm driving. I'm driving. We have a lot of canyon roads in Los Angeles, and I'm driving those. And the fact that I didn't take myself or anyone out on one of those canyon roads is living proof to me that there's a God. I was an out-of-control drinker. Um, I liked being intoxicated, inebriated. I never tried to control my drinking. I don't understand the point of social drinking. As a matter of fact, I don't think those people should even be allowed to drink. Um, <laughs> I, I don't understand that at all, you know. I love... I love when Clancy says, you know, I love the guy who leans on the bar and goes, oh, no, no more for me. I'm beginning to feel it. <laughs> That's what you drink for, you know. <laughs> I always went for the effect. I always went for the effect. Um, I loved being intoxicated. 
I love being intoxicated. I love not being here. Um, I only drank and used for 12 years. That's all it took for me. And it wasn't like there was a huge amount of damage on the outside, you know. Um, you know, there's lots of people who come in here and they have, you know, horrific stories of jails and institutions. And, you know, I got arrested a couple of times for stupid stuff. Um, I never went to a hospital as a result of my drinking, but I was a very sick girl when I got here. I was a very sick girl when I got here. And the damage that I'm talking about is the kind of damage that happens slowly and almost imperceptibly at first from the inside out. And uh, in my case, the unacceptable became the acceptable, the untenable became the tenable, the unlivable became the livable. I, too, when I was 18, got gang-raped under the influence of alcohol and barbiturates. But unlike Cookie, my reaction was nothing. I already knew that I was such a piece of crap that why should I even consider going to a hospital, calling the police, trying to kill myself, I got up the next morning and went to the beach as though nothing had happened. Because that's just the kind of thing that happens to a person like me. I also got pregnant when I was 17 on a one-night drunk stand with Alfred Gimpy Ortiz. And, um, <laughs> and I had a son in 1969, a week after my 18th birthday. I gave him up for adoption three days after he was born. I signed the papers, and I never thought about it again until after I got sober. And that's the kind of thing that happens to people like me. The truth of the matter is, until I was 13 and still until I started to drink, I had a lot of promise. I had a lot of potential. People expected great things from me, and the moment I started to drink, my life took a completely different path. You know, I fully understand, because I've heard thousands of stories in Alcoholics Anonymous, that the rooms of AA are filled with people who, while drinking, manage to accumulate, as Cookie said, you know, the trappings of life. You know, wives, husbands, lovers, college degrees, cars, boats, dogs, cats, ducks, whatever. You know, they just, they, you know, and I fully believe that all of you who manage to accumulate that stuff or have lives while drinking... I believe you're alcoholic. I've heard your story. What I don't understand is how you did it. Because I either drink or I have a life. But I don't do both. I mean, it's not like I got my life back after I got sober. I got life for the first time. Now, the first 13 years of my life, I sort of understood how it was to be a person in the world. But from age, you know, 12 until 24 or 13 until 24, I just didn't understand anymore. And I lived in a way that... Uh, you know, that nobody understood, including me. And um, I uh, I heard about Alcoholics Anonymous on late-night television. I didn't know anybody who was in AA. Back in 1975, there were not a lot of young people in Alcoholics Anonymous. There were not a lot of attractive young people like I'm seeing now. I was one of the more unattractive of the unattractive young people. Um, a lot of that had to do with how I looked. I weighed 230 attractive, bloated pounds. I... Um, I was wearing a 599 granny dress from one of our local discount emporiums, a pair of uh, uh, shower sandals. Um, I had a bad haircut that I think I had performed on myself, very spotty hygiene and a really bad attitude. And, um, and I was not a vision for you. And quite frankly, I don't understand why anybody would come to AA with a good attitude. I mean, think about it. You know, my life had been crappy for a long time, and I certainly didn't see how coming to these meetings was going to change any of that. But AA wasn't much in the news or the media like it is now, and I had never known anybody who was in AA. I knew that there were alcoholics in my family, but I had never known anyone who was in AA. And they used to have these late-night um, commercial public service announcements on television, have a drinking problem, call this number. Now, I knew I had a drinking problem, and so what? Everybody I knew had a drinking problem, and I didn't think that there was anything that any of us could do about it. And uh, But I called the number. I called the number. One night, I just called the number. And they offered to send somebody to take me to a meeting, and I said, no, thank you. I'll get there myself. And I started going to meetings in the fall of 1974, or actually the summer of 1974. And... Um, and they were in basements in Hollywood, California, which, by the way, is not glamorous. And um, and I started going to these meetings. And I went to meetings for five months. Um, but I didn't get sober. 
I didn't get a big book. I didn't get a sponsor. I didn't get a commitment. I didn't get involved. I leaned against walls with my arms folded and glared at people and dared them to come near me, and most of them didn't. Uh, there were a couple of really mean guys in Hollywood AA who are both dead now, and they seemed to like me, and they were talking to me. They saw right through me. I was just terrified. I was absolutely terrified. I had no idea what I'd gotten myself into. Um, and when the holidays rolled around in 1974-75, I thought, you know what, you're not sober anyway. What would be the point of sticking around this outfit? And I left. And I had some vague intention to come back after the first of the year. My birthday is March 3rd, so it took me slightly longer than I thought it would to get back. Um, but uh, I, uh, I left. And um, I had a therapist. I always had a therapist because I was always trying to unravel the fascinating mystery of me. And, um, and this therapist was particularly uh, strange because um, they were always sort of strange. But this one was the strangest of all. His name was Sid. And he was blind. And we used to smoke dope and neck during my sessions. And, um, and you know I was getting a lot of help from Sid. And uh, anyway, Sid persuaded me to go to this place called the Beneville Pines for the, um, for the New Year's weekend. Now, the Beneville Pines is a church camp in the San Bernardino Mountains where we recently had those terrible fires in Southern California. And... Uh, but it's owned by the Unitarians. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the Unitarians. They're not Southern Baptists, for sure. The Unitarians are a very loose bunch, and they like to have a lot of fun. And I only agreed to go after Sid assured me that they were going to have a lot of liquor at the Beneville Pines. And sure enough, when I got there, they were unloading gallon jugs of some unknown vintage out of the back of a station wagon, so I felt safe. And I spent the entire weekend completely inebriated having a three-way with a couple of sex therapists from Carpinteria, California, and uh, their names were Bert and Sally. I don't know why I remember that. I just think that I thought I'd look them up at a later date. Anyway, I... Uh, <laughs> it was pretty cold there, too, and I was wearing insufficient clothing and stumbled around the snow and got pneumonia. Maybe that's what delayed my return to Alcoholics Anonymous. But anyway... In March of 1975, I came back to AA. Now, I had no hope that I was going to stay here. I came back here for two reasons, I believe. Because I was tired. I was the tiredest 24-year-old I've ever seen in my life. I was so tired. And I also came back, looking back now, because I got a perception of Alcoholics Anonymous. Not, not conscious. But I got a perception of Alcoholics Anonymous that I hold to this day. I looked at AA and I thought, it's good, it's decent, it's wholesome, it's unhip. People seem to be nice to one another here. And I thought that if I could let down enough of my guard to let you in, I thought that if I could let down enough of my guard to tell you that I wanted what you had instead of what I had, that nobody here would laugh at me. Because I always thought that if I said that I wanted even what I saw in my own family, that people would laugh at me and say, you can't do that. You're such a piece of crap. What makes you think that you could have a decent life? And I was very lucky because the day after I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was in a meeting in a clubhouse in North Hollywood, California, and the man who became my first sponsor, Bob Earl, Bat me up against the wall in that clubhouse, and he had met me the year before. And he said to me, look, punk. He said, you have a serious problem with alcohol and drugs, and you better damn well get sober, or you're going to die. And then he said to me, and if you don't get sober, I'm going to break your jaw. Now, I don't know what you would have thought. I thought, he cares. <laughs> you know? I heard you cared. He cares. And the miracle was I took his phone number because people had given me their phone numbers the year before. And every night I'd go home and I'd throw all the phone numbers away because I wasn't going to call any of you. What was I going to say? Well, and, and you wouldn't remember me anyway. Why would I call you? And it's so strange because I think now, you know, I give out my phone number to a lot of people. And sometimes they actually call. And when they call, I may not remember who they are, but it doesn't matter. They start talking, I start listening, 
I start talking, they start listening. It doesn't matter. Alcoholics Anonymous is based on the principle of one drunk talking to another. You don't have to know who the person is to know who the person is. I already know who you are. I don't need to remember who you were and how I met you. But I didn't know that. So I would throw all the numbers away. But the miracle was I took his number, and the second miracle was I actually called it. And the third miracle was I actually called it again. Because the first time I called Bobby, completely unsolicited by me, he started telling me what to do. Now, I don't know what you're like. I don't want people to tell me what to do. And I particularly don't want you to tell me what to do if I haven't asked you to. But the amazing thing about him and all the people who've helped me since is that they're not really interested in my opinion about the direction that they're giving me. They don't care. They simply don't care. I remember Bobby said to me, you're essentially useless, but you have a car. And, and you could drive other people to meetings. And I, I said to him, I, I don't want to drive other people to meetings. They'll be in the car and I'll have to talk to them. I don't want, you know. And he said, I don't really care. You put them in the car and you aim it in the direction of the meeting and the chances are good that you'll both get there. Um, my first commitment in Alcoholics Anonymous was greeting. I was a hostile greeter. Um <laughs> I greeted at the door of a meeting called Wilshire Normandy. It was then the largest meeting in L.A. It was on Sunday nights. Everybody went to Wilshire. You came to Wilshire, you got greeted whether you wanted to be or not. Tried to go around the other way, we'd intercept you. Um, I had no life, which is a good way to come to AA because then you have nothing to do but go to meetings. I used to get to the meeting an hour and a half early. I would put my keys on the floor and the spot where I wanted to stand by the door. God help you. You stood there. My place. It's my place. And people started recognizing me as a sort of hostile girl at the door of Wilshire. And, uh, and they started inviting me to coffee. And we don't really have a home group system in Los Angeles, but I went to a circuit of meetings in Hollywood, the same meetings every night. And I started to get to know the people. And I was right. You were kind. You were kind. I'll tell you how much self-esteem I had when I was new. Like none. Um, I remember one night Bobby was going to uh, the store to get some cigarettes, and I used to smoke in those days, and God bless the city of Winnipeg for not letting me smoke this morning. I quit a long time ago, and I can't take it. Um, but I used to smoke. And uh, Bobby was going to the store, and I asked him to get me some cigarettes, and I tried to give him some money, and he wouldn't take it. And he brought me two packs of cigarettes. And I was so blown away that somebody would actually give me some. See, I wasn't, uh, you know, some people come into Alcoholics Anonymous and they're able to accept the love of the group and they feel like they're home. And I didn't feel that way at all. I was not able to accept your love for a very long time. Uh, you scared me with your love. I mean, I was somebody, I, I didn't want to be hugged. I didn't want to be touched. I hated shaking hands at the door of Wilshire because my hands were sweaty and they shook and I was scared. And uh, and so my uh, my fear masked as hostility for quite a long time. Um, but I've gotten kinder and kinder as I've, I've spent time in Alcoholics Anonymous this last 28 plus years. But uh, you know it hasn't been easy for me. I'm I'm you know I'm not a perky person. You know I I'm kind of cranky and um, you know and it's just not easy for me all the time. But uh, but sometimes I act better than I feel. A lot of times I act better than I feel. Anyway I. Um, I started getting involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have never not been involved in Alcoholics Anonymous um, uh, because Alcoholics Anonymous is the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me. Um, you know, I, uh, I've had a spiritual awakening of the most educational variety possible, like they talk about in the back of the book in the spiritual experience. All I think they're talking about in those two pages is a change of attitude. You know, because of and by myself without Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm basically a miserable malcontent. I mean, that's kind of my personality type. I'm kind of a miserable malcontent. And uh, my friend Patty O, who some of you might know, and I, we're going to write our own story for the fourth edition of the big book, or our own chapter. We were going to call it To the Cranky, and we figured we'd get a lot of support, you know, because uh, there's a lot of cranky people in AA, really, you know. Um I mean, if I don't apply these principles every day, I'm just a really cranky person. And, uh, 
You know, and that's just basically who I am. And, you know, I, I've just gotten a realistic look at myself here. I mean, I think the longer I'm sober, the more real I get. And one of the things that I love is that people seem to think, you know, that you've got to do this thing perfectly. And we get all kinds of outs in our literature, if you'll just read it. And, uh, you know, I remember, um, I remember, uh, I had a panel that I used to take into the Civil Brand, which is the women's jail in Los Angeles. I took my panel in for about three and a half years. And the inmates were not allowed to participate in the meeting. So if the panelists had to do everything, we read, we spoke, we led, and they listened. And, um, I was very impressed the night that there was a Ray Charles concert in the jail and two women still came. And, uh, I thought these are the ones who are sincere. But, uh, anyway, I would have gone to Ray Charles personally, but, uh, you know, but that's just me. Um, but they came and, and so one night I was reading chapter five and, you know, people always say, you know, why do you have to read the same stuff over and over and over and over again? Because sometimes it's not going to be just rote. Sometimes you're going to actually hear what it says, you know? And that night I was reading it slowly and deliberately because I thought, you know, some of these women have probably never heard it, and maybe if I read it slowly they'll get something out of it. I don't know what they got out of it, but I know what I got out of it. I'm reading, and the paragraph that comes right after the 12th step says, Many of us exclaimed, what an order. I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. And then my favorite line in the whole big book. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. Do you know what that means? No one's even come close. And then it goes on to say, we are not saints. The point is that we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. That's the point. And I'm willing to grow along spiritual lines. I am someone who would have never sought God if I hadn't had the disease of alcoholism and had not come to Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought it was all a bunch of hocus. You know, um, I was kind of a, you know, a, a left-wing agnostic, maybe an atheist. I have no idea, you know, but I didn't really believe in God. Um, but the truth of the matter is, I thought I was ambivalent about God. But then as it turned out, as I stayed sober for a few years, I discovered I was enraged at God. And that was my problem with God. It wasn't that I didn't believe in God. It was that I was enraged at him. Because if you were born with everything that I was born with, and at 23 ended up in Alcoholics Anonymous, you have to cast around for somebody to blame if you're not used to taking responsibility for yourself. I went straight to the top. You know, I figured it was God's fault. You know, it was God's fault. And what I know today is that God creates us with free will, and he just lets us do whatever it is that we need to do. Uh, you know, and uh, and today I believe in God. Today I believe in a higher power. You know, I think Alcoholics Anonymous, after all these years, I think it's really a spiritual practice. And if you're a practicing Christian, Hindu, Muslim, Jew, Buddhist, whatever, there's practice that you have to do every day in order to maintain your spiritual condition. And here we get to do practice. And the simplest form of practice, as far as I'm concerned, is uh, what I call spiritual activism, which is just a simple act of helping somebody else. You know, I'm a great admirer of the Dalai Lama of Tibet. And, um, you know, and I have this little book that I read, which is called The Pocket Dalai Lama. It's just little quotes from him. And all he talks about, all he talks about really is service. That's all he talks about. Mother Teresa was all about service. That's all she ever talked about. And truly, when you distill down any religion at all, it comes down to it's all about kindness and service. You know, that's the true essence of spirituality, I think. You know, that's the true essence of spirituality. You know, in uh, in Judaism, we have a tradition called tzedakah, which is charity, you know, and service and um, and that's the greatest thing about Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, for me, is the opportunity for me to get out of myself. I tend to depression, and nothing helps me more than trying to get out of myself. And um, and it's been a great blessing for me. Anyway, um, when I was about 10 years sober, I uh, I started to travel, like I said. And, you know, I've been all over the place. And, uh, you know, I, I remember reading years ago something in some publication, and they were talking with uh, a metaphysical church called Unity, but they were talking about the men and women of Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, and they said that, uh, you know, that the men and women of Alcoholics Anonymous are like a beloved pet dog, and, uh, you know, if you keep the dog in the yard and it's got a fence around it, it's safe, but if it gets out of the yard, it could get run over by a car, or, 
somebody could carry it off or could get some poison meat or something. The analogy that they were drawing is, 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 from what I could tell, is that as long as we remember our primary purpose, which is to stay sober and carry the message, we can really go anywhere. You know, and I've gone to all sorts of places and had all sorts of interesting adventures, you know. I went to Jamaica because I love reggae music, and people said to me, well, how can you go to Jamaica and not smoke dope? And it's like, how can I live in Los Angeles and not smoke dope? You know, I mean, I I was relaxed in Jamaica. You know, I have the pictures to prove it. And, uh, you know, uh, when I was in Israel, I went to Egypt. Why? Because you can. And, uh, you know, and I got on a plane and I flew to Egypt for two fun-filled, wild days. I mean, you know, I'm somebody who used to not be able to get off the floor. But now I'm in the pyramids, and I'm riding a camel, and I'm taking a cruise on the Nile. And I'll tell you, being a taxi in Cairo is like being on a funhouse ride from hell. I mean, it's like, you know, there's no lanes, and everybody just drives wherever they want, and they have like five traffic signals, but I think they're ornamental, and they're guarded by guys in immaculate uniforms, and all the cars are dented and scratched, and they're old Fiat's, and those Lottas, those square Russian cars, and... And everybody lays on the horn, and it's like 190 degrees, and there's camel and water buffalo, and carts of Bedouins drawn by donkeys. I mean, it was so fabulous and so awful. But uh, anyway, uh, by the end of the second day, I am collapsed in the perfume palace in Giza, which is where the Sphinx and the big pyramids are, and I'm laying under a fan. I'm about ready to drop dead. And I'm about 12 and a half years sober, and a guy I've never seen before in my life comes up to me, and he says, I can get you some hashish. And I think, I'm in Egypt, who would know? And then I thought, you would. And then I thought, you better get your butt back to that bomb shelter, even if you don't understand anything they're saying, because the disease never sleeps. I am vigilant over my sobriety because I am further away from my last drink than I have ever been in my life. But I'm I'm in an interesting situation. I mean, I think the most important thing that I can do up here, or the most important thing I can do in Alcoholics Anonymous beyond not drink and not use, is to tell you the truth about who I am. I mean, I think that's vitally important because not only did I need to be able to identify with people before I got here, I've been here for 28 years, and I've desperately needed to identify with people who have done things in their lives since I've been here. Everything that I know about living on the planet as a human being, I've learned how to do here at Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, there's some really practical stuff that goes on here. I always love when people get up at the podium, you know, and they say, the longer I'm sober, the less I know. And I think, God, haven't you been paying it? I mean, you know, there's a lot of really good information here, you know. I got here, I was clueless. And everything that I know about living in life, really, I've learned since I've been here. As a friend of mine says, you know, I felt like I'd been jettisoned to earth without the brochure, you know. I mean, it seems like everybody else knew how to live life. I didn't have a clue. And I've learned how to do it here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've learned how to show up for work because I learned how to show up for an AA commitment. You know, in an A commitment, I mean, if you got the cookie commitment, that's not flinging a bag of cookies at the meeting and going to the movies. Oh, no. That is coming to the meeting with your cookies and arranging them on a plate and guarding the plate until you're ready to let the others touch it. And then when they touch it and mess up your arrangement, you get a resentment and you get to go home and talk to your sponsor about it, how they touched your cookies. And you learn a lot of stuff from this. If you're a cup washer, which we used to be when I was new, we had real cups and we washed them, we went to the kitchen and we actually had to talk to the other alcoholics, which was horrifying at first, but then got easier and easier. And that's, you know, that's how I learned how to go to work. And trying to be kind to people in Alcoholics Anonymous has held me in good stead at work. You know, I used to, I remember looking at the 10th step when I was new and it says, you know, when we're wrong, we're going to promptly admit it. I thought, I'm never going to admit when I'm wrong, ever. I'm going to take it to the death. And the 10th step is the greatest thing now because I don't have to, you know, cross the street to avoid you anymore. And I don't have to cringe in my car over something I said two years ago to you that's still reverberating in my head. I love making amends today, but boy, I hated the idea of it when I was there. And, uh, you know, and I work in show business, which is a business where people aren't always nice to one another. And I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but every once in a while, I'm a little snippy to somebody on the phone. And, um, you know, but unlike most of the people in my business, I actually call back and I say, you know what, I'm having a bad day. And I have no right to take it out on you. 
And I know that the other person is looking on the phone like, who is this alien? You know, because nobody in my business ever apologizes to anybody, but I do. And because of that, I've had the same job for 16 years, and my boss says things to me like, I can't tell you how many times people have said to me how nice you are, how helpful you are. I learned how to do that in Alcoholics Anonymous. Believe me, when I got here, you know, the only reason why I would ever do anything nice for somebody is because I wanted something. And the only reason why anybody ever did anything nice for me is because they wanted something. And that's why I found Alcoholics Anonymous so confusing at first, because it didn't seem like anybody wanted anything from me. Of course, the people in AA knew the secret that I didn't know. I had nothing to offer, you know. Um, and so they didn't want anything from me. But as soon as they felt that I had something to offer, which wasn't very long, by the way, you know, I always love when people say, I don't know enough to help anybody. And, you know, AA is by amateurs for amateurs, you know. It's based on the principle of one drunk talking to another. The reason why therapy never worked for me before I got here, well, for four reasons. Number one, I never trusted the therapist, so I always lied to them. Number two, I always had the feeling that they didn't know what I was talking about, which may or may not have been true. Number three... I felt that it was my job to entertain them even though I was paying them. And number four, and most importantly, looking back now, I'm a chronic depressive. And looking back now, I really felt what they were trying to do is get me happy enough to stop killing myself. The only problem is the patient generally dies before they ever get happy enough. Alcoholics Anonymous takes the exact opposite approach, and that's why it works. AA says, AA says, stop killing yourself first. We'll worry about the reasons later. You don't have to know anything about why you drank in order to stop drinking. The way you stop drinking is you stop drinking. I will repeat this for the rocket scientists in the room, such as myself. The way you stop drinking is you stop drinking. I mean, I remember there was a guy named Irv Nimi, actually one of the two mean guys who talked to me when I was new. And I remember this friend of mine said, she went to Irving and she said, Irving, I can't stop being mean to my children. And he looked at her and said, stop it. <laughs> what a novel idea. Stop it. <laughs> And then you have to work the steps to get down to the causes and conditions so you can save that. You don't have to know anything. Somehow, miraculously, everything is revealed. It's revealed. And you're not going to dig up anything that isn't meant to be revealed, you know. I mean, there are things about my life that I still don't remember. There are things about my life that I still don't understand. And writing countless inventories is not necessarily, A, going to reveal it to me, or B, make me care anymore about it at this point, you know? I mean, there's just some things I'm never going to get. And my sponsor, my current sponsor, Julie C., who's been my sponsor for 20 years, I call her the great white goddess. She's just. And if you don't think your sponsor is the best sponsor in AA, get another sponsor. But she had a sponsor whose name was Shirley O'Hara. And Julie wanted to write these constant inventories, you know, and, and Shirley would say things like, the drunks are waiting, you know, and more importantly, Julie said, I heard in a meeting that the unexamined life is not worth living, and Shirley looked at her and said, the unlived life is not worth examining, you know, go out there and live, go out there and live, and that's what I've been able to do in Alcoholics Anonymous, my entire life is not in the meeting. My entire life is not in the meetings, but I still go to three or four meetings a week. I'm still an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I have been given a life beyond my wild dreams. I have crossed the bridge to normal living. I don't think it's them and us. I think it's us with our disease. I think it's diabetics with their disease. I mean, I just don't think it's us and them. I have a lot of friends who are not in AA. I've become a fairly interesting person in the last 28 years, you know, and I have an interesting life. But I'll tell you what, the people that I'm closest to, the people that I feel the closest about are all members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they all feel as passionately about this program as I do. Now, I'm in an interesting situation. I'm in love with a man who's not an AA who maybe should be. Um, we've been doing this dance on and off for 18 years, and uh, and he's never been to AA. 
and I'm in love with him. And uh, and I don't think that we choose who we love, but I keep it no secret. And I still go to meetings, and I left this weekend to come here. And, uh, you know, it's very interesting because I remember when I got my 12 and 12, I remember reading in Step 12, there was, I'm just paraphrasing, but there was something about, there are some people for whom, you know, it will not be possible to have a family life, and these people will be able to render prodigies of service. And I wrote F this in the column of my 12 and 12. And the truth of the matter is, the truth of the matter is, for whatever reason, I have not had a family life in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've never been married. I'm 52 years old. And I've not had a family life. And I find myself at 52, you know, like really madly in love with somebody who may not be suitable for me. But I love him. I love him. And he loves me. And I don't know what's going to happen. And, uh, you know, and so it's a very interesting period for me because I don't know if this constitutes a family life. And I don't know how many prodigies of service I have to render at this point. I mean, it's just interesting, and I'm just putting it out there, you know, um, because life changes, and things happen, and we get sick, and the people in our lives get sick. You know, I make light of the fact that I'm bionic, but the truth of the matter is, you know, when I was 50, the warranty ran out on my left hip. And uh, and I had to have a total hip replacement. And it was interesting what it brought up for me. I'm not afraid of pain. I'm not even afraid of pain medication. You know, what I'm afraid of is asking people for help. And, boy, it really came to me. You know, I thought I'm going to have to ask people for help. And the truth of the matter is it's a gift to allow people to help you. I know that. It's a gift to allow people to help you. But it's still hard for me to ask for help. It's much easier for me to help you. Um... About five years ago, my dad was diagnosed with colon cancer, and uh, and he lived, and he's fine. But uh, that brought up some other really interesting stuff for me. Um, when he was going to go in the hospital, first of all, because of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I did not think it was my movie. I knew that it was my parents' movie, and I was merely there to be a supporting player. My mother's a very stoic woman, and... Um, She's very stoic, and it may or may not have anything to do with the fact that her father was an alcoholic. But, you know, you want to talk about something. My mother is very much like Cookie's mother. You want to talk about something unpleasant. She does want to change the subject. And my mother's a big secret keeper, too. You know, about five years ago, um, my sister-in-law, who's a historian, began to do a genealogical study of my mother's family. And to do this, she got my grandfather's emigration papers from Hungary. And... Um, and in which she discovered that my grandfather had been married to another woman when he came to the U.S. and that my mother had had a half-brother. Now, my mother's 80 years old, and we'd never heard anything about this. So I called up my mother, and I said, Ma, I said, uh, did you know Milton, your half-brother? And she said, of course. She said, you know that picture of me on the horse when I'm a baby? She said, the guy holding the reins, that was Milton. And I said, oh. I said, Ma, what happened to Milton? She said, oh, I don't know. He must have died. He was a lot older than me. And I, and my favorite, though, was I said, Ma, how come you never told us about this? And she said, ah, you didn't know him anyway. What difference does it make? So, you know, that's what my mother is like. But when my dad was going to go in the hospital to have this tumor removed, which did turn out to be cancerous, we knew he'd be in the hospital for five days. And I called up my mother. And I said, okay, here's how it's going to be. When Dad goes in the hospital, I'm taking off of work, I'm moving in with you, I'm driving you back and forth, and I'm doing whatever it is that you need me to do, and I'm not going to take no for an answer. And I heard her start to say something, and then she stopped, and she said, that would be really nice. Now, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, you would have had to put bamboo shoots under my fingers and light them on fire to get me to admit that I was thrilled to be here. But the truth of the matter was, I was so thrilled to be here. I needed anybody's idea but mine. I was secretly thrilled to be an Alcoholics Anonymous for a long time before I could actually admit that I was so happy that you let me sit. I'm going to tell you one other story and then I'm going to sit up. If you think that there will ever be a time that you're going to get your life into a nice, neat little package and nothing will ever intervene again, and everything will be perfect from here on out, forget it. God has a way of throwing what I call a little 
celestial monkey wrench into the mix just to see if we're paying attention. And I got a whopper about seven years ago. It was the 4th of July, which is a big holiday down south. I was sitting on my couch about 9.30 in the morning, drinking a huge cup of coffee, trying to get my heart started. I was staring out the window at my view. I was thinking that eventually I'd probably move myself to the grocery store and get the ingredients for the salad that I had promised to take to the barbecue later that afternoon, and my phone rang and my life changed forever. And it was a woman, and she said, my name is Julie Jones, and I'm a private search investigator from Seattle, Washington, and I've been asked to locate you. And I had no idea why she was calling. And then she said, is your name Eileen Waterstone? And I said, yes. And she said, that's the date March 28, 1969. And then I knew, because that was the date my son was born. And um, so I burst into tears, and I said, is it in Seattle? And she said, oh, no. She said, we do this by computer. She said, your son lives in your area code. My son was living a mile and a half away from me 27 years later. She said, can I give him your number? I said, no. I said, call him back. Give me his number. Tell him I will call him in a little while. And I hung up the phone, and I called my parents who were not home, thank God. I called my sponsor who was home, thank God. I called a couple of friends who had adopted kids, and I got their blessing. called a couple of more friends. And I picked up the phone about a half an hour later, and I dialed the number, and I said, my name is Eileen Waterstone, and I understand you're looking for me. During our first uh, conversation, he revealed to me that two years earlier, he had been in a rehab. Needless to say, I was stunned. Um... <laughs> He was conceived on a one-night drunk stand, as I said, with Alfred Gimpy Ortiz. And uh, it became apparent in the course of the conversation that he was no longer sober. Now, he told me this without knowing anything about me. I'm not sure why he told me this, and I've never asked him. I think it was either to tell me the worst thing about himself so I could reject him, or he was trying to impress me, and neither one of these things worked. But uh, I, I thought, oh, what the hell? And I said, and I was 21 years sober at the time, and I said, hey, what a remarkable coincidence. I said, I have 21 years in AA. And I could sort of hear, oh, God. Oh, oh God, you know, she knows, you know, I'm busted. Anyway, um, we made a date to meet two, two days later. I don't look like anyone in my family, except for the fact that my son is six foot three, half Mexican, and a guy who looks exactly like me. We look exactly alike. Anyway, he's gorgeous. He's 6'4", 215. I went and picked him up. I took him out to dinner. We went downtown for sushi. About halfway through the meal, I leaned across and I said, did you ever, in your wildest dreams, ever imagine that I would be this cool? <laughs> and he had to admit, no, he didn't. Anyway, um, it's been a very strange ride for us. Um, he... Uh, he has been in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous for the last seven years. I don't think that he's ever actually been sober. Um, he's strung out on a medication called Vicodan. Um, he's a drug addict and an alcoholic. And he periodically drinks, but mostly he's strung out on Vicodan. Um, last summer, uh, he and his girlfriend gave birth to a, a, a child, so I have a grandson. And that's kind of a mixed bag for me also because... It's very hard for me to interact with my son and his girlfriend, um, and so I don't see the baby that often. Plus, there's a complication that he has a whole family of his own whom I've met. Um, so it's a very odd situation, you know. And uh, and uh, but I'm still glad, you know, that he came and found me. And more importantly, I'm still glad that I was the person that he found, because Alcoholics Anonymous made me the best possible person for him to find on the other end of the phone because I've heard stories. People have come to me after I tell this story, and they said, I went to look for my mom, and she was drunk. I went to look for my mom, and she was dead. I went to look for my mom, and she didn't want to have anything to do with me. And I was completely open-hearted when he came. The fact that he continues to get loaded makes it harder and harder for me to interact with him. But when he came, I was ready. 
I always said that I wasn't going to search because I felt it was a violation of his privacy and that of the people who adopted him. But boy, I was ready when he came. And, uh, you know, I took him to meetings. I introduced him to everyone I know. All the men in Alcoholics Anonymous that I'm close to have tried to talk to. And maybe it's just not his time. And maybe he's never going to get sober. I don't really know. And I see him sometimes when I can tolerate it. But, uh, but it's hard. And, uh, you know, he will be the only child that I will ever have. And, um, and it is what it is. You know, an Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me you know, that there are things that I can accept and there are things that I can change. And this is something that I cannot change. You know, that's another thing. You know, we say the serenity prayer a lot, sometimes before meetings, sometimes after meetings. And, you know, the serenity prayer is a real tool. It's not just something, some platitude that we say, you know. I mean, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, you know, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. If I can't accept it, it's incumbent upon me to change something, even if it's just my attitude. My sponsor says that she has seen more people go out and drink over things they could have changed than have gone out and drank over things they couldn't accept. And I really believe that. We don't have to stay in that relationship. We don't have to stay in that job. You know, there are no rules of that sort. You know, people will say don't get involved in the first year. There's nothing in our literature that says that. I got involved in my first month. It was great. It was a distraction. It kept me from drinking. The fact that the guy I got involved with got drunk and went to the Denver International and stole a car is not my problem. You know, um, you know, it is what it is. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. I am a completely transformed person as a result of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you're new, I want to invite you to stay here. I want to invite you to get involved. I want to invite you to put aside your preconceived notions of who we are or who we're not, because everyone will have their own experience here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been given a great life here. I hope that you have the same. And it also says in our book that when all else fails, help another alcoholic. I hope that I've done that this morning. Thank you so much for having me.